0: And uh, so we've asked James Mead, who is regional director with Eastern European Mission, to come to tell us what's going on with the mission because um, we support it as a church. And um, so we taught class in here this morning. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but God is moving through his Holy Spirit in Eastern European countries. And some there had the wisdom to know that after they broke off from the Soviet Union that if they were going to have a stable society, they needed some kind of a rock. And that was Jesus Christ. And so they're asking for Bibles for the government They're asking for Bibles for public schools. James mentioned that uh, there's a a class that kids can enroll for where they study their Bibles at school, public school. Ninety-seven percent of the children are asking for that class. During the war in Ukraine, people are confronting their own mortality and uh, they want Jesus Christ. And one of the beautiful things that they do is they print those Bibles in the country where they'll be distributed whenever they can. So they don't print them all up here, ship them over there, but they create employment, they create support, they create friendships, and people all across the religious spectrum are asking for the scripture in their own language. And it's a beautiful thing that it can be supplied. 1.5 million. And uh, the need is not being met. The demand is not being filled. And so that's something that I want you to pray about. And if you decide that you want to do that, I think that the best way to do it would be to write a check to the Eugene Church of Christ with that as the note on your check for European mission. We'll gather all those up and we'll send them all, along with our own monthly support from the church. So without further ado, I want to present James Mead and say, James, thank you so much for driving down from Portland and yet uh, almost defeated by the freeway, at least slowed down, huh? But you're here, God bless you.
1: Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Norm. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Some of you were here this morning. Uh, My name is James Mead. I live in Portland, Oregon. And yes, it is a total mess up there. So whatever popped in your head, that's true. Yes. Um, But I'm here to tell you, not only is the gospel working in Eastern Europe, the gospel is working in Portland, Oregon, too. Um, I'm part of a church in Portland called All City Church Church. We just planted a little over a year ago on Easter. That was our one-year birthday as a church. And in that first year, we got to see 150 people get baptized. We've gotten to baptize even more than that this year. um, Many souls are coming to put their faith in Christ Jesus, and we're just teaching the Bible and preaching his name right in the middle of all that mess up there. So I bring good reports to you. The gospel is working in Portland, and please keep praying for us and all of the other churches up there. Um, This morning, I want to share with you about a verse that has meant a lot to me. Um, I guess you could say this is a life verse, but it always feels weird picking one verse from the Bible and being like, yeah, that's my favorite. (laughs) So This is one of my favorites, shall we say. This is from the book of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, and I'll read it to you now. Um, It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. I'm going to explain why that verse is so impactful to me for a second. So I have a son. His name is Jacob. He's a junior in high school. He's almost 17 and now he drives himself to school and that's super weird to watch (laughs) that happen as a dad and see that transition, but I'm really grateful for it. When Jacob was about five years old, we got a diagnosis that he was autistic. He had at the time what was called Asperger's syndrome. Now it's just referred to as autism spectrum disorder. So Jacob, from a very young age, was starting to show signs that he uh, had autism. He would get down on the same like level as like a bike wheel. He would lay it on his side, and he would spin the wheel and just stare at this wheel. Or he would stare at like bright lights for a long time. He did a lot of like the physical things that you would see. Another thing he used to do all the time was he would hum really loudly. Like if... You know, if you hear like the refrigerator in your kitchen making a noise, we all kind of just tune that out. That noise would be unbearable to him. So he would just hum really loudly to drown out these noises. And he would typically hum whatever was stuck in his head, which was usually the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang theme song. So I heard that a lot. Or Thomas the Tank Engine or something. And he would hum so loud. It was so cute. It was so funny. Um, He also has ADHD, so he was like... Pew, 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 all over the place, and he would hum and you know flit about, and so we called him our little hummingbird when he was a little kid. Uh, I loved Jacob so much. This event, though, when when we found out about this diagnosis, I got to be totally honest. Was even though we suspected it, it was still shocking to me. I had grown up imagining being a dad imagining having a relationship with him. Uh, My father left when I was one. I had a very abusive stepdad my whole childhood instead, and then we fled across the country from uh, Connecticut. I grew up right outside New York City. We fled across the country to Albany, Oregon, and uh, I was hurt a lot as a kid. I was hurt by the pain of that trauma for years and years afterwards, it's stuff I'm still talking about to this day. But I knew from the time I was real young, about eight years old, I started dreaming of Jacob, not necessarily seeing his face, but dreaming about us, dreaming about a future where I was a dad and I got to have a do-over moment and have this incredible relationship with my own son. And so on the day that we sat with that psychiatrist and she gave us her evaluation of Jacob's behaviors and told us about his autism, I really wish she hadn't said this this way, but she said, if you're trying to understand what that's going to be like for your son, basically it's going to be like he's alone on this deserted island and you just can't quite get to him. First of all, that's not true. That hasn't proven to be true by any means. But that was something that stuck in my heart and stuck in my head for the next several days as I thought about that. And I was so disturbed by what she said and how she said it. And I was just, I was reeling from that. I was like, that's not the life I wanted with my son, that I can't get to him? What are you talking about? I've got to go to him. And... Uh, I've been in a band for the last 20 years. It's called Cutlass. We're a Christian band. We write songs about Jesus. I've gotten to go all over the world, uh, every continent except Antarctica so far. Looking to check that one off too. But of course, I had to leave the very next day after we got this diagnosis about Jacob. So I had to go. I'm on, you know, I'm on our tour bus. I'm sitting there with a friend named Russ Lee. Russ is a great singer uh, from a group called New Song. Um, he's quite a bit older than me, and, and Russ has become sort of a, a friend, a mentor in my life. He looked at me. He said, James, what's wrong? I can tell something's wrong. Let's go for a walk. So we went for a walk together, and we talked about the experience I had had the day before. I told him why I was sad. And he looked at me, and he said, the day before you got this diagnosis, did you feel like you had a great relationship with Jacob, and you had a connection with him, and he needed you? I said, yes, of course, yeah, I I love my son, and I feel, you know, he really loves me, and we, and, but what she said was so disturbing to me, and he was like, okay, well, God is not surprised by any of this. And God already has a plan for Jacob. God already knows exactly what he's going to do through Jacob's life to bring glory to his son Jesus. And Jacob still depends on you. Jacob still looks to you to be the example of godly love and discipline and and the authority on the Bible and the things that he's going to question in this life. He still depends on you. Nothing has changed for that young man. Just because you guys have this big scary word floating around your house now, autism, that doesn't change anything. And then he shared this verse. So he said, my friend, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. That's what I want to talk about this morning. That particular scripture is an if-then statement. This is a conditional clause that expresses a universal theological truth about God because it's founded on His very nature. It's a proclamation he's trying to tell us in scripture who he is and how he is or what he's like. So this statement is an if-then statement, and there are, of course, many other scriptures in the Bible that kind of show us God's heart for, for us in this same way. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways— then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So there you go. That's a, that's a if then statement. If they do this, then I promise I am like this and this is how I will respond to their prayers. why is the Lord's response in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that he will direct our paths if we trust in him and lean not on our own understanding? Well, that indicates that he's already about the business of directing us and moving us along and clearing those obstacles in our path. Jeremiah verse 29, chapter 29, verse 11 says this. You probably have this on a coffee mug at your home or something, but it says this, for I know the thoughts Or the plans that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's God's will for you. In that same verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we're told to trust in God's understanding. Lean not on our own understanding. So what does the Bible have to say about God's understanding? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways says the Lord. Verse nine continues, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's the Lord's understanding, and mine is woefully short of that. Pales in comparison. (laughs) That's the proof as to why I need to lean not on my understanding. His ways are above my ways. His thoughts are not like my thoughts. Other references to wisdom say this, Proverbs 19, verse 21, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Psalm 119, again, what a great song. We probably sing this uh, almost every other weekend, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That word lamp, the reader of that psalm originally would have noticed that word and and looked over on their shelf and said, you mean like that lamp? This was a common household item, this word lamp. And this lamp in particular really only shines light about three or four feet in front of you. Metaphorically speaking, I think a lot of us have at times in our life cried out to God and said, would you just show me the plan? Would you show me the path? Show me your plan. What is happening? What is ahead of me? I think it's a mercy, actually, that God only shows us about three or four feet in front of us at a time. For who of us would have enough courage to continue down the rest of that path if he showed you everything? Not me. I would have been paralyzed in fear if I saw every obstacle in my way as I demanded to see the plan. God is merciful, and his word is a lamp to our feet. And Mercifully, he's showing us a few steps at a time. Be thankful for that. He's showing you a few steps at a time, but not so much that you are overwhelmed and distraught with fear because he is leading you. He is directing your path. So we really can trust that he knows better than us and that he loves us and he has plans of peace for our futures. Trust in the Lord with all one's heart, like that verse in Proverbs said. That indicates not just a casual recognition of God, but a deeply personal, impacted life. An intimate relationship with Him. As with the lamp, God not only knows all the obstacles in your path, but remember, He alone can remove them. So if we're demanding to see the whole plan, first of all, He's merciful to not do that to us. (laughs) Secondly, he alone is the one that can remove those obstacles anyway. He alone can clear that path and lead you forward. So now we have to ask ourselves what it truly looks like to trust him. And I believe that that means we need to understand a little bit more about the will of God. So I got to go to seminary. I went to Grand Canyon University and I have a degree in theology and blah, 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 whatever. I got to look at a bunch of the principles of Bible study. And my favorite subject was hermeneutics, which is definitely a like push up your glasses kind of moment. Hermeneutics, yes. (laughs) Hermeneutics is basically the principles of how to study the Bible. You have to understand things like original language, original audience, uh, the background and context of that region that's being talked about. Hermeneutics teaches us things to look for in the Bible so we can understand God's will a little better. I think there's probably, for a king of kings, lord of lords, creator of the universe type God, there's probably uncounted ways that we could explore what his will looks like. But this morning, I just want to talk about three manifestations of God's will. They are the decretive will, the preceptive will, and the dispositional will of God. And I'll explain those things real quick. The decretive will, that of course refers to this, having the authority of a decree. Or it's the way that he states his decisions about how he wants us to live, right? It's how uh, he expresses his commands to us. That's the decretive will. The preceptive will concerns, of course, the precepts of God or the didactic instructions that convey what he wants to teach us in any moment as we go through our lives, what he wants us to observe about life as we follow him. And third, the dispositional will of God. This concerns his distinguishing qualities of how God proclaims himself to be. These are the ways he tells us, I'm like this. This is what I'm like, right? So, this is his disposition, his temperament, the characteristics of God in as much as we can understand those things. Here's an example of what that looks like in Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this verse shows us that in God's disposition, he is not pleased with the perishing of the wicked. While his decreed will constitutes that he will distribute justice to the wicked, and while he is certainly pleased when his preceptive will is obeyed, it's not necessarily his disposition towards mankind to be pleased with the perishing of the wicked. Instead, He shows long-suffering, patience, kindness, mercy, and the forgiveness of sin through the imputed righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Life with Jesus is not a meritocracy. We're not earning our way to heaven. God wills the obedience of his children, and he also wills the well-being of his children. In my opinion, in God's economy, we see obedience and the well-being of his children as congruent Those are things that always match up. The obedient child will not befall harm as easily as the disobedient child, right? So that's what this looked like in my family. When Jacob started walking, we made a joke because he went from like walking to running the same day. So like we used to say that Jacob had two speeds. He was either asleep or he was running. And we live near a really beautiful park. And so on nice sunny days, he would want to go play at the park And we would go for a walk through our neighborhood to go to this park. But of course, there's a crosswalk where you cross a busy street from our neighborhood to that side, there's the park. And of course, Jacob is running ahead and he's always running. Every time we go to the grocery store, he's running down the aisle. Every time we go to the park, he wants to run across the road. And I, as a good father who loves him and I do not want to see him destroyed, I have to yell out, stop! right? And Jacob has to stop. And if he does not stop, I have to discipline him and show him that he must stop. The obedience and the well-being are always congruent, and it always has to come from a loving father who is not pleased by the perishing of the wicked, but wills us to have a joyful life and get to know his dispositional will, get to know what he's like because we obey, right? When the preceptive will is violated, things are no longer congruent. Now God must execute punishment against sin while not particularly enjoying the personal application of that. So that's how we understand God's will as we read scripture. Remember the verse earlier that says in Second Chronicles, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. the The verse in Proverbs teaches us to trust in the Lord, to to, to lean not on our own understanding, and it also teaches us to talk to Him. This verse as well, Second Chronicles that we just read, it says, uh, "If if." they'll pray. Then I will hear them from heaven. Notice with me that a theme here in the scriptures is that God wants us to talk to him. He wants to talk to us. We also talked about Jeremiah 29 11 earlier. Most of you have that verse memorized. Well, the next verse says this, then you will call upon me and go to pray to me, and I will listen to you. That's a promise from God. First Kings, he promises this, I have heard your prayer and your supplication. In chapter 9 verse 3. Of the poor, God says this, when they cry to me, I will hear for I am gracious in Exodus 22. And the psalmist declares in Psalm 4 verse 3, the Lord will hear when I call him. Isaiah says, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. That's who we're talking about here. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. Another principle we get to study through hermeneutics is the principle of first mention. This is one of my favorite things to explore the Bible. Uh, As we read from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, we see Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, present at every moment and at every step throughout the history of the church. And as we look in scriptures and we see the very first mention of something, that often stands as the simplest and clearest presentation. Uh, The first mention of a concept helps provide understanding of the foundational doctrines that we need to know as we're studying God and his word. But it's also important to study the context in any and all of those passages that develop the doctrinal concept further. But the principle of first mention is very helpful. Here's how that works. In the very first pages of Scripture, we read about God's relationship with man, and communication was a foundational part of Adam's personal time with God. Remember, the Bible says that as he created man and woman, that he walked and talked with them in the garden. That's one of the first things that God wants you to know about him, One of the very first things that God wants you to know about his character is that he wants to walk and talk with you. He wants to be present with you. He wants you to talk to him, and he wants to be the one that answers your prayers. That's one of the first things we know about him. The very first mention of sin. So Adam and Eve sin, and then they hide in shame. Today, in Eugene, Oregon, I want to tell you this. Shame Is never an implement of God's justice in your life. Shame is a tool that Satan uses to keep you separate from God, to keep you isolated in the torment you feel in the wake of sin. Shame is a human construct. To to us, if I offend you and I need to make an apology in a real valid way to you, you may think, Oh, he needs to be sorry for a little while first before I really buy it that he understands, right? I've done that too. That's a human construct, and that is not true with us and the Lord. In fact, our response time in the wake of sin, it would be most beneficial if we sought his face immediately and repented immediately. There is no such thing as shame as an implement of God's justice in your life. He does not want you to wallow in shame and wait and put it off. Confess now. Repent now. Come to him now. That's what God wants you to know. The very first mention of sin, what's God's response to it? That's probably the most important thing we could learn from that lesson. What's God's response to the first sin? Well, he wants to walk and talk with them. He goes immediately to the garden to find them, and he calls out, Adam, where are you? And there were only two people on earth. It's not like God lost Adam. He knew exactly where Adam was. This was more of a rhetorical question. Adam, where are you? Where are you in our faith? Where are you in our relationship? Yesterday, we walked and talked. Where are you? That was God's reaction to sin. He went to find him immediately, to reestablish connection with him immediately, to talk to him immediately. And yes, he confronted Adam with the sin, and he explained exactly how detrimental it was. He confronted him with the sin and then immediately outlined his plan for salvation for the entire world. Genesis chapter 3 has the first mention of salvation the proto-evangelicum is what it's called. It's God's plan for how to deal with sin, how to rescue us, how to redeem us through Jesus. That's God's first reaction to sin. He comes to Adam immediately. He reestablishes connection with him. He does confront him with sin. Conviction is not the same as shame being convicted about sin and understanding your responsibility in it is not the same as shame, and you are safe to bring that to the Lord immediately. And he shows us through scripture that that's his way. That's the first thing he does, right? We see this in the prodigal son story in Luke 15. The Bible says, and this is the story that brought me to faith in Christ, by the way. At age 17, up in Albany, Oregon, just up the road here, I was going to South Albany Community Church, and I was a gnarly kid. From years of abuse, I responded by fighting the world around me. And I was angry and scared and mad, and I just started doing absolutely everything wrong that you could imagine. And God spoke to me that night. Because the Bible says that the father was watching and waiting for his son's arrival, and he saw him while he was still quite a distance off. And that phrase stuck in my heart because I felt like I am quite a distance off. At that time, I still thought all Christians were perfect. So I was looking around at the room around me, and I was like, I'm not like these people. I'm quite a distance off. So I'm so glad that the authors of Scripture put that particular phrase in there. God was watching and waiting for his son's arrival. This story, the prodigal son story, the father is a representation of God, our Holy Father. It says he saw him while he was quite a distance off, and then he did a pretty remarkable thing. He ran to meet him where he was, just like that story with Adam. He went to him immediately to establish presence and connection again. Here's why that's kind of crazy when you're reading those stories. Jesus tells three stories in a row in that section. And we have chapter breaks and, and little helpful headings in our in our scriptures, in our Bibles as they're printed in modern day. But Jesus didn't stop talking. He was he told these three stories right in a row. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. Three stories right in a row that were pretty much the same setup. And in the traditions of Jewish storytelling, his audience would have known that by the third story, he was about to make his really big point. Because it's basically lost, found, lost, found, lost, found. And they're thinking, wow, this story's really good. There was a wealthy farmer. With a big community, and this son did a very public thing. He disgraced his father in front of this whole community and he left and he was a prodigal and he spent his life, you know, partying, drugs, women, whatever. He was in a foreign land, he was under foreign occupation. He woke up one morning with a moment of clarity, sleeping in mud next to a pig trough. And to the Jews, that would have been an abomination. They weren't even allowed to be in the same area as pigs. And here he is. And he comes to he comes to the realization, I must go back to my father's house and I will plead with him to take me in and I will be lowly like a servant I don't deserve. And so he's planning this all the way back. He's planning how he's going to earn his way back into favor with God. Again, life with Jesus is not a meritocracy. But this son comes back. And here's why this story is remarkable. The Jews actually had a ceremony called the Kizaza Ceremony. I had never heard of that until I started researching all these stories. But that is basically the way that they would deal with the return of a prodigal person into their community. It was a ceremony to publicly shame that person. One of the most amazing things about the father watching and waiting for his son's arrival and then running out to meet him where he was is that he was running ahead of the crowd. He was running ahead of that moment to make a different moment of impact in his son's life, to receive him right away. And he runs up to him and he hugs him tight. He runs up to him and he doesn't reject him or accuse him of his sins. He doesn't send him away. He brings him close. then he walks him the rest of the way back home. There was no resolution. There was no ending to that story, really. The audience would have expected an explanation of the reconciliation between the two brothers. They would have expected an explanation of the feast Uh, Jesus doesn't really finish the story. He just kind of like tells these three stories and then doesn't finish the end of the third story. Just kind of that moment of the father coming and having presence and forgiving that son and then walking him the rest of the way home. There's a couple comments between the father and the oldest son, but this story is left kind of open-ended. And to me, I see the Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet moment there. I think that that moment is maybe too precious to try and over-explain it. And I think that what we see from that part of Scripture is that at the moment that God runs to you and rescues you and you put your faith in Jesus, he's walking you the rest of the way home for the rest of your journey. And he knows every step of the path. He knows how to direct your steps. He knows that he can clear all of those obstacles on the path. He's walking with you. He's walking and talking. He's ready to talk to you, to answer your prayers, to listen to you, and to guide you in wisdom that is not like ours, in understanding that is not like ours. God wants to talk to you today. God wants to direct your paths today. That's what he wants you to know about him. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak at your church this morning and to share an EEM update with you. We are hard at work distributing Bibles, about 2.2 million Bibles this year with God's help and yours. And we're just so grateful for all the years of support from this church. So God bless you. My name is James, and I'll be out there ready to talk about some other questions about our ministry after church. Thank you.